0: this morning we are, of course, remembering, rejoicing over the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we'll be focusing our attention on some things that Jesus said in Luke 24, verses 44 through 49 today. These verses take place after Jesus was resurrected. Amazingly, even though Jesus had made it very clear, the disciples were not expecting him to rise from the dead. After they discovered the empty tomb, Luke tells us about a conversation that Jesus had with two believers while they were walking on their way to the city of Emmaus. They were very discouraged, discouraged about how the chief priest and the Sanhedrin had delivered Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified. They had heard from some of the women who had been to the empty tomb that Jesus was alive, but they weren't exactly sure of this, of this information. Matter of fact, in Luke twenty four eleven, it says, "But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them." So Jesus begins talking and walking with these two disciples as they were traveling to Emmaus. He calls them foolish. For not believing all that the prophets had said about the Christ. Look at it in verses 25 to 27. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe, and all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures i always thought that would just be such an amazing conversation, to have the Son of God explain the scriptures to you. Well, Jesus, soon after this, ends up just vanishing from their sight. They meet up with the 11 disciples and tell them what happened. Jesus then appears to them again and invites them to touch the wounds in his hands and feet so they could be sure it was really him. This may have some connection with what we just read earlier about uh, Thomas's doubts. He then asked him for something to eat, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish. Well, that's the lead-in to the verses that we're considering this morning. So let's read verses 44 to 49. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses... And the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you're to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's really an amazing passage from several angles. One of the things that Jesus does here is very similar, obviously, to what he did with the believers that he was walking with on the road to Emmaus. He speaks much of the Old Testament prophecies that foretold so many of the details about the coming Messiah, what he would endure and so forth. And as Jesus speaks in this way, he's not only giving, credits, uh, giving credence to the messianic prophecies, he's affirming the divine authority of all of the Hebrew scriptures. So before we get into the details about the suffering and resurrection of Jesus, we need to consider the things that Jesus is saying here before he, get, before he gets into that. So our first main point is this. Jesus established the authority of his words as he spoke of the word. Interesting how Jesus emphasizes the importance of the words that he had spoken in the past and the words he was speaking to them at that present time. He actually undergirds the authority of his words by referring to the words of the Hebrew scriptures, what we would consider the Old Testament. The things Jesus says in these verses are really quite central in understanding the Old and New Testaments as being the inspired and infallible and authoritative Word of God. We've been working our way in recent weeks through Psalm 119, and as you know, a key theme in that psalm is the importance of the Word of God. It just shows up in almost every verse. The psalmist speaks of the Word as God's commandments, His testimonies, His statutes, His precepts, His judgments, His ordinances, his laws. I mean, when you use all those terms to refer to the scriptures, what you're saying is that in its entirety, the scriptures are the authoritative word of God. Well, how do we know that? The psalmists believe that, and that's important for us to understand that. And that's we we believe that too. But there are some other things that kind of lend this credence to the fact that the scripture is infallibly authoritative as the word of God. There's a number of outward proofs um, about the scriptures, that the Bible's the Word of God. For example, there, are, there is archaeological evidence, quite a bit of it, uh, of the events and the people and so forth that the Bible speaks of. There, are his, there is historical confirmation of, of events that took place uh, from other sources. And there's also the fact that the Bible is better supported through the quality and number of manuscripts than any other ancient book matter of fact, nothing else comes close, anywhere close, to the manuscript that, that are in existence for the Scriptures. And those things are quite helpful. But the best proof we, proof we have of the Bible being inspired by God is contained within the Bible itself. It's the Bible's testimony about itself. All the way through this particular paragraph that we're looking at, the risen Christ refers often to himself as he seeks to build the faith of his disciples and prepare them for the ministry that they're going to have. And that in itself really is the first thing I want to point out. As Jesus establishes authority of his words, he's making it clear, this first point, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the promised Messiah. Verse 44, he says to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus is very clearly calling their attention to himself and to his words, which makes perfect sense. I mean, he just rose from the dead. And even though the disciples had heard testimony from others and they had other evidence in addition to that, They were still a little numb. They were still a little unclear on all that was going on related to Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus is reminding them of basic facts that he has told them. He starts by saying, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, or while I was still with you. That while I was still with you time is talking about the time before he was crucified and resurrected. There was a uniqueness about that time, and that time is over. Things are not the same, and they never will be. That's because now Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He's still the same Jesus. That's one of the main reasons he showed them the wounds in his hands and the wounds in his feet. He's the same Jesus, but that time of humiliation is over. He is now the exalted risen Christ. But there were things that he spoke to his disciples while he was still with them that were extremely important, obviously. And we're going to see that they're important because they are consistent with the Old Testament scriptures. But they're also important because they're spoken by the eternal Son of God out of his mouth. And anything that God the Son says is the word of God because he's God. But not only is Jesus God, he is also the Messiah that was promised in those Old Testament scriptures. He's the Messiah people have been looking for for 6,000 years. He was the hope of salvation for all who would believe. Therefore, everything that the Messiah said would be vitally important for these, uh, for these d- disciples. I mean, they were privileged to hear these things, and Jesus wants to make sure they remember carefully the things that he said. Well, the things that Jesus, the Son of God, said tells us directly this next point, that the Hebrew Scriptures testify, they testify of Jesus Christ. It's one of the things that Jesus had told the disciples while he was still with them. He said, all things which were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When Jesus uses these three terms, these three phrases... These terms refer to the Hebrew Scriptures in their entirety. He's talking about every single book that makes up what we consider the Old Testament. The Law of Moses, that included Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets included Joshua, Judges, Samuel. That they they just had one Samuel instead of two, and one Kings instead of two Kings, but it's the same book. The prophets also included the major prophets, and the minor prophets. The Psalms were sometimes also known as the writings. They included the Psalms, which had the book of Ruth as a prefix to the Psalms. There's Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Lamentations, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Chronicles. They, too, had had that one book instead of two, but it's the same material. So the Jews had a different grouping of these books than we do in the Old Testament in our Bibles, but it's the exact same books. And the Jewish people were very careful to guard these books, and that in itself is interesting when you think about it. I mean, these scriptures speak very clearly about how the Lord chose the Jewish people to be his people through Abraham. They were his chosen people, But those Old Testament scriptures also speak often about how much they failed to honor the Lord, how they were frequently rebuked, so much of the prophets, and their words are rebukes to the Jewish people. And you have discipline for their sin. It's all through those books. And in spite of what you would call some really bad press there, the Jews guarded the Hebrew scriptures carefully. Now, we know Jesus was very direct with the Jewish religious leaders about their failure to honor the Scripture. But one thing he never did, he never rebuked them for not taking care of the Scriptures and not preserving them. If they had failed to do this, Jesus surely would have called them on it. And it's these Scriptures that testify directly of the Christ they spoke in detail about the promise of the Messiah, the things he would endure, the things he would accomplish. But we also need to note this next point, this next point, and that is Jesus testified of the Hebrew Scriptures. So it's working two ways here. The Scriptures testify of Christ, and Christ testified of the authority of the Hebrew Scriptures. The fact that Jesus specified the categories that include every book of the Hebrew Bible, means that he was testifying to their authority. He was testifying to the fact that they were and are the inspired word of God. Therefore, as he was looking to encourage the faith of the disciples, he used the scriptures of the Old Testament to do that, which leads to our second main point. The scriptures clearly prophesied of what the Christ would accomplish and the purpose of those things. Now, before we get into what was prophesied, we need to take note of something else Jesus said about the Old Testament scriptures as a whole. All that the Hebrew scriptures prophesied of Christ must be fulfilled. It all must be fulfilled because they are the word of God. Now, it was not possible that the prophecies made about the Messiah would fail to come to pass. That was not even a possibility. It was not possible because it's the word of God. God did not inspire the prophets to prophesy things that they hoped might happen, but nobody could really be sure. He didn't didn't, um, inspire them just to prophesy about things that were optimistic in nature. Every prophecy made by God's prophets in the Old Testament were inspired by God himself. Therefore, everything that was written about the promised Messiah must be fulfilled, just like Jesus says here. Now, the only way that could happen for those promises to be fulfilled would be because, or would be the only way way it could happen that they wouldn't be fulfilled is that maybe God didn't really mean what he said. Or maybe he wasn't, he's not powerful enough to bring it to pass, or you could say, well, maybe the prophets made mistakes, and because there were mistakes in those prophecies, you know, God wasn't going to fulfill them. Well, in this verse, Jesus makes it clear that none of those things are true. He said every prophecy must be fulfilled. That in itself is the testimony of the Son of God that the Hebrew Scriptures In its entirety, they are the word of God. Then in verse 45, we see that this Jesus opened the minds of his disciples to be able to understand these scriptures. That, again, would be an amazing thing. You're sitting there, you're talking. I mean, you're in the midst of all this stuff. Jesus has died. Some of them saw different aspects of the crucifixion and, I mean, betrayal, the trials, all kinds of different things. They've had these conversations. They've heard he's resurrected, but they're not really sure And Jesus is talking about these scriptures, and you can tell here, even still, they did not fully understand. Well, all of a sudden, whatever Jesus did was like, gave them understanding. It was like, oh, oh, I mean, what a moment that must have been. It's just a one verse little uh, thing here. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, but that was probably, that was surely a life changing moment for them. It's a life changing moment for us. Because they're the ones who wrote those things down for us. Well, he opened their minds. Now, this doesn't mean they didn't—they didn't know those scriptures. I mean, they'd learned, heard these things from the time they were kids. They knew these scriptures, but they did not see the clear connection with the Messiah until Jesus opened their hearts and opened their minds to understand. That's what's going on here. Well, let's look at what they spoke of these scriptures. We're told that the scriptures prophesied of Christ's suffering. They prophesied of Christ's suffering. It's interesting to note that what, what Jesus said uh, really back in Matthew, whenever the, the, some of the disciples were attempting to defend him when he was being betrayed and the soldiers were coming to arrest him, Matthew 26, 51 to 54 says, Behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then... Will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? So, the scriptures that spoke of Christ's suffering must be fulfilled. <coughs> what were those scriptures? Let's consider several of them. First, <coughs> some examples from the Psalms. Earlier in the service, we read and then actually sang from Psalm 22. That psalm is often called the Psalm of the Cross, and all you have to do is read it and understand why. Because it has so many prophecies related to what Jesus endured on the cross. It prophesies that the Messiah would be despised by people and sneered at. Well, while Christ was on the cross, the chief priest mocked him by saying, If you really are the Son of God, you saved others, surely you can save yourself. Psalm 22 says, that would happen, and it did. It also speaks of his bones uh, being out of joint, which happens in crucifixion. It speaks of his hands and feet being pierced. It speaks of people casting lots to see who would get his garment. At the very first phrase of the psalm, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know jo- Jesus uttered that on the cross. All these things were prophesied and fulfilled in Jesus' sufferings, that's in the Psalms. And we could find others. I'm just giving you a few ex- some examples here. In the prophets, specifically in Isaiah 53 is probably the clearest, we're told that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We are told that he would be pierced for our transgressions. We are told that he would be scourged. We are told that like a lamb that is led to slaughter, so he would not open his mouth. And it's interesting, all those who interrogated Jesus were constantly amazed at how he refused to defend himself. We are told that he would be cut off from the land of the living in a violent manner. In the law of Moses, the sufferings of Christ were especially foretold in the blood sacrifices of bulls, lambs, and goats. These sacrifices, hundreds and thousands made on a daily basis in the temple These sacrifices all spoke of the fact that the wages of sin is death, and that the only way sin could be atoned for was through blood sacrifice. And, of course, the Passover lamb of the Exodus was a prophetic foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. All of these things that were written about the Messiah in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled, and they were. They were fulfilled in Christ's sufferings. Jesus also made it clear that the scriptures prophesied of Christ's resurrection, prophesied of Christ's resurrection. As we noted, the disciples were surprised when they learned that Jesus had risen from the dead. But consistent with what was prophesied of him, Jesus had spoken of that himself to them. A few examples, in Luke 9.22, he said to the disciples, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. A few chapters later in, uh, in, in Luke 18, uh, very similar verses. This is uh, 18, 31 to 34. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So Jesus had multiple times reiterated what these prophecies of his suffering and resurrection were about when he was with his disciples. Well, where is his resurrection spoken of in the Old Testament? A few examples. In the prophets, we'll go back to Isaiah 53. We are told that though the Messiah would be rendered as a guilt offering, and if you're rendered as a guilt offering, you're killed. So he would be rendered as a guilt offering, Still, he would see his offspring and his days would be prolonged. It's hard to have your days prolonged when you're dead. So death was not the end for the servant, for the Messiah. The fact that his days would be prolonged was a prophecy of the resurrection. In the Psalms, we have a prophecy that both Peter and Paul referred to in the book of Acts. It's from Psalm 16, verse 10 which says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So the reason that the body would not undergo decay is because he would be raised from the dead. He would not remain in the grave. And amazingly, the fact, uh, the fact that the Messiah would be raised from the dead was prophesied hundreds of years before it ever took place. It was also because the Messiah suffered And rose again from the dead on the third day, that salvation for sinners was completed. Quote on your outline by John Owen. He said, the resurrection is God's declaration that the account of our moral indebtedness has been paid and that God is satisfied. This just God will never demand anything else for your salvation, for our salvation. All paid for. When Jesus said it was finished, that's what he meant. It was finished. So in the resurrection, God declared that every sin had been paid for by Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. In the resurrection, God declared that the judgment that every one of us deserved had been satisfied by Jesus Christ on the cross as the righteous one. In the resurrection, God declared that all who believe... In Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior, they are declared perfectly righteous before God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And in the resurrection, God declared that all who believe in Christ are eternally saved and secure in Christ. Albert Martin said, The resurrection was God's thundering amen to Jesus' loud cry, It is finished. These are just glorious truths, and it was all prophesied way back in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Therefore, based on the authority of the Scriptures, we have absolute certainty that all of it is true. It's all true. Well, that leads to something else that was written in the Holy Scriptures that Jesus refers to, in the Hebrew Scriptures specifically. The Scriptures prophesied that forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed by the authority of the name of Christ to all nations because of what he accomplished. Verse 46 and 47. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So it was not only prophesied that the Christ would accomplish salvation through his suffering, And his resurrection, but it's also prophesied that the good news of this salvation will be proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So, where is that written? He's saying the same thing. That's written in the Old Testament as well. Where is that written? Well, the law of Moses. We'll start there. We see in the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis when he made covenant with him. In Genesis 12, The Lord promised that in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That blessing would come through a descendant of Abraham who would accomplish their salvation. That person, of course, was Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham. The Lord also promised that Abraham's descendants would be more than the stars in the heavens or the grains of sand in the beach. And he was speaking of people from nations all over the world who would believe in the Messiah for their salvation. Prophesied in the early chapters of Genesis. And the prophets, we read this in uh, Isaiah 60, verses 1, 2, 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but... The Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear to you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So this is a promise that the gospel would be proclaimed and that nations of the world would respond. In the Psalms, we're going to go back to Psalm 22 again. After all that focus in the early part of the Psalm on the suffering of the Messiah, we read this in verse 27 and 28. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. This is Old Testament stuff. That's where it is, in the Old Testament. And that's quite a promise. I mean, it's, and it's only one of many. There are so many passages like this in the Hebrew Scriptures So because these things are promised in the word of God, we can believe them. And we can share them with others in absolute confidence that we have sure authority in doing that. We know it's all true. It's all true. Jesus gives us a further confidence (laughs) of this gospel that's based on sure authority. It's the authority of his name. He says in verse 47 that these things will be proclaimed in his name. That means they're proclaimed in his character, the character of the sure and sovereign Son of God, the Messianic Savior and King. And it's in his name that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed. So when the message is proclaimed in the name of Jesus, it has the full authority of God behind it. Now, let's consider how Jesus described this message of good news. That's for all people. He says that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. Repentance involves seeing our sin, turning away from it. Here's how it's described in our confession of faith. We actually read it in our service last Sunday. It says, repentance is a God-given grace wherein a person is made sensible. Important phrase here person is made sensible of the manifold evil of his sin by the Holy Spirit. He then humbles himself with godly sorrow, self-abhorrence, and detestation of his sin, with a purpose and endeavor to walk before God so as to please him in all things. So repentance begins by God making us sensible, conscious, very much aware of the manifold, multifaceted evil of our own hearts. And it's multifaceted. We could dig for a long time and never get to the bottom of all of the bad stuff in there. This is vital because if a person does not see the evil of their own heart and life, they cannot and will not be saved. Because if a person does not see themselves as a sinner, in their minds, they have nothing to be saved from. They're fine. There are so many false teachings in this regard. For example, it's amazing how many people believe, <coughs> regardless of what you see in the news, that people are basically good. It's amazing how many people believe that. And that if you're good enough, usually it means you haven't killed somebody. I don't know what to do with the people who have actually killed somebody. But usually, if you haven't killed somebody, sure, you're going to go to heaven. You're good enough. Good enough isn't good enough. We are, our sin is multifaceted. That's a false teaching, that people are basically good, and therefore, we're all going to go to heaven, as long as we're pretty much a good person. Many believe that if they will get in touch with a true identity of their inner self, then they will be fulfilled and made whole in life. Therefore, they don't need a Savior. They don't need a Savior. And if you tell them to do, you're in trouble. How dare you tell them they need a Savior? Conviction of sin is an aspect of God's grace. Steve mentioned this earlier today, too. Conviction of sin is an aspect of God's grace, to undeserving sinners. He shows us how bad we really are. He shows us that we are guilty before our righteous God. He shows us that we are under his wrath. He shows us that there's nothing we can do to fix it. This is bad news. This is really bad news. But it's a bad news that we have to embrace and recognize that is true of each one of us. But in God's grace, that bad news leads us and prepares us for good news. Because not only is repentance to be proclaimed in the name of Jesus Christ, but also forgiveness of sins as well. In his suffering on the cross, Jesus endured the wrath of God due for the manifold evil of sin in our lives. He endured the price for all of it. His resurrection is a declaration from God that the full price for our salvation has been paid. And true repentance involves faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You don't just turn from sin. You have to turn toward something. You turn toward Christ. And that turning toward Christ is faith. So repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin. Repentance and faith go together. And it's through repentance and faith that we are forgiven and made right with God. Now, something else here. The Hebrew scriptures prophesy that this message will be proclaimed to the nations beginning with Jerusalem. (coughs) It begins in Jerusalem because there's there's a biblical principle here. Salvation is to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles or to the nations at large. But it's also important to take note of something here. At this point, I think a good argument could be made that at this point in history, Jerusalem was the most wicked city in the world. Think about what had just happened there. It was in Jerusalem that the Son of God was betrayed. It was in Jerusalem that the Son of God was sentenced to death on false, trumped-up charges. It It was in Jerusalem that the Jews who were there actually called for the Son of God to be crucified. It was in Jerusalem that the Son of God was brutally scourged. It was in Jerusalem that the Son of God was crucified, and he was mocked by the Jewish leaders as he died. That is evil. That is just wicked. And it's in Jerusalem that Jesus said repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name first. Let's start with the most wicked city in the world. There's hope here. And this tells us that there is no one too wicked for the gospel. If you're praying for someone who seems, as best you can tell, almost beyond the reach of salvation, be encouraged by the fact that the gospel went first to the wicked city of Jerusalem, and thousands of people responded in faith. Just such hope in that little, little, little beginning point. Start in Jerusalem. Let's start there. Well, that takes us to our last main point, verse 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So our third main point is that believers are enabled by the authoritative witnesses of the crucified and resurrected Christ, to be authoritative witnesses. Jesus has emphasized the divine authority behind his suffering and his death and, and his resurrection, and he's also emphasized the divine authority by the proclamation of repentance and forgiveness of sins. He not only wanted the disciples to have a firm ground on which they could believe these things, this was focused on their faith for for sure, but also they needed firm ground on which they could proclaim the same message to others. In verse 48, he says, you are witnesses of these things. So we see next that the apostles were eyewitnesses of these things and faithfully communicated them in the scriptures so that all believers can confidently testify as witnesses. They had seen the things related to the suffering and resurrection of Jesus. They now knew with certainty that it all had taken place. The Lord had opened their mind to understand how they connected with these Old Testament scriptures. And they had heard Jesus teach these things and actually even now were understanding them with a clarity they had never had before. So as they are witnesses of these things, things related to his, uh, his teaching, things related to his suffering, things related to his death, things related to his resurrection, they have the authority to share those things as confirmed facts, as actual truth. They're not sharing their personal opinion or their philosophy of life. They are witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they are authorized by the name of By the authority of Christ to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all people. And they did it. The book of Acts speaks of how they and others were active witnesses of these things, but they were also witnesses of these things and the fact that they wrote them down. We have four gospels that teach us of Christ, we have the book of Acts that teaches us the history of the early church. We have the New Testament letters in which the truths of the gospel and the Christian faith are are written with such great and helpful clarity. And because we have this accurate witness from Christ's apostles, we too can be witnesses of these things. Because we can know them accurately from someone who reported them accurately. And to make sure that the disciples did report these things and report them accurately, Christ adds this promise in verse 49... Behold I am sending forth the promise of my father upon you but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high so this further encourages us that because we see because, this further encourages us because we see that believers are enabled believers are enabled by God the spirit to be witnesses of the gospel of their lord and savior Jesus Christ so Jesus promises that God the Spirit will come in power upon them. They're to wait in Jerusalem, that wicked city, for that to happen. And it's important to note here that part of the work of the Spirit that he's not, he didn't speak of here, but he did speak to them at the, at the, uh, the Last Supper a Passover that they were observing together, and John he talks about he's sending the Spirit to call to mind the things that Christ had done, the things that Christ had said, and and, and to, he's given them talking about the Holy Spirit being the one who would inspire them to write these things down. So that was a promise that they would be anointed by the Spirit. That's part of what's being included here, really, to write the New Testament. So it's a further affirmation of the authority that each Christian has that we've all been given to be witnesses of Christ, because those who were the the eyewitnesses and inspired witnesses wrote it down, and we can share that ourselves. Now, the coming of the Spirit and power was going to take place just over a month from this time in Jerusalem. That coming was a one-time event, but it speaks of the fullness of the Spirit in the life of every believer, which enables every believer to be a gospel witness in their life and in their words. So we we need to have no doubt about the truthfulness of Christ's death and resurrection. It's been affirmed to us in multiple ways. It is Christ's death and resurrection that has accomplished full salvation and forgiveness of sins for all who will believe. So our Lord and Savior is risen. He is risen indeed. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you went out of your way with the disciples, and therefore with us, to help us to see the absolute authority behind this amazing salvation that you accomplished for us on the cross and then on being resurrected in your resurrection. Thank you for just making sure that we could we see it and know that it's true. It's true. It really happened. And it's not just the fact that it's in a historical event. It is. But it has implication for everyone who believes. Thank you that the same promises you made to these disciples, you basically are making to us. The same promises they made to those people they they witnessed to in Pentecost, you're making those promises to us. And it's the same gospel. Thank you for the work that you have done in grace to send forth Christ and also all that Christ has accomplished to actually change our lives radically change our lives, change our whole eternity. So, Lord, we thank you for that. Help us to continue just just this season of remembering the death and resurrection of Christ. Continue to encourage us as people who have repented and are continuing to repent, but have also been completely forgiven of our sins. Lord, that might be one thing that we especially need to remember this morning, there's all kinds of things to remember. But sometimes things that we have done get so stuck in our minds, so stuck in our history, that we feel like we can't get beyond it. I thank you that it wasn't beyond you, that you paid the price for those sins that are stuck in our head that we think we can never get beyond. We can because of our Savior. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. There is manifold evil in my heart. It is there. I know it's there. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I thank you for the price he paid for my sin on the cross. And I want to receive him as my savior and I commit my life to him as the absolute Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.